Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guest today is William Mandera Jr., CEO and co-owner at Mancini Duffy. Mancini Duffy is a national design firm with a 100-plus year history and a tech-forward approach based in New York City. I love New York, by the way. Bill comes from a family in the business. I love this. I love this part. As his father and grandfather were general contractors, he got the most thankless jobs at his father's job sites during his teenage summers, which sounds totally like something a parent would do. Life lessons, right? In retrospect, it was a great way to instill understanding and respect for the profession. It was also a not-so-subtle hint from his father that he should be thinking about architecture school instead. Bill had been at TSC Design for five years when Mancini Duffy purchased the firm's assets in 2011, at which point he was named a senior associate. He was later named a principal in 2014, became a co-owner of the firm in 2017, and was named Chief Executive Officer in 2018. He has believed in having consistency of vision and values throughout his career, meaning we should never put ourselves or our vision ahead of the clients. Another statement that just jumped off the page at me. I love that because it's so true. This consistency enables Bill and his firm to respond to their clients quickly with clarity and with authority. Bill lives with his wife and two children in Paramus, New Jersey. The project we're going to talk about today is the 125 West 25th Street Building in New York City. You always want to go, New York City? (laughs) I can't help it. For the last decade, New York has experienced a boom in tech startups, entertainment companies, 
design and creative firms, and co-working environments. Reflecting the Chelsea neighborhood's evolution into Silicon Alley, Mancini repurposed an industrial warehouse building at 125 West 25th Street into a modernized, multi-use Class A office building for tenants with forward-thinking businesses. Mancini provided full architectural design services for Normandy Real Estate Partners Capital Redevelopment Program. For clients like Normandy who seek top-tier tenants, the modernization design delivered a flexible interior geared toward typical tenants of the neighborhood. They provided a variety of test-fit scenarios for clients to review when considering the space. For example, when Peloton signed a lease for the top floors of the building, this flexible floor plate allowed Mancini to create a unified work environment unique to their company and needs. Why don't you um, give me just some general information about, you know, kind of the stats about this building and what you did at this building? When we we first found the building, um, there was a lot of interesting things about it, but it was existing. It was uh, 11 stories and about 102-ish thousand square feet. Um, It was overbuilt per the New York City zoning requirements for that area, which allowed us to do a lot of the things we did. Some of the really kind of interesting challenges we had there was that it was also what is called an interim multiple dwelling in New York City, also referred to as a loft law building, which means that they had tenants living in there that in a different time may have been called squatters. So uh, what that meant was we had people living there in this industrial building in various types of, we'll call them apartments, with various services they may or may not have had. But because they had been there since the 80s or some even earlier, uh, there was a lot of challenges with taking those folks and, you know, relocating them or put, I mean, the situations they were living in and were in many cases were unsafe. So that was one of the larger challenges of the building, as well as just some of the physical characteristics of the building. But what was what was great about it was that the basic building itself, because it was overbuilt, some of the shapes of the buildings allowed us to add things to the building and add uh, penthouse, which ultimately was what attracted Peloton to the space initially. That roof deck is pretty cool. My uh, youngest son lives in Boston and in, in a new apartment building, but it has this amazing roof deck on the top of his building, which we regularly hang out on. And when I was looking at your pictures, I was like, oh, check out that roof deck. So that wasn't always there. What was when we, we started the building, there was a roof deck there, and there was a gentleman living there in, um, I don't know, it was basically some kind of odd wood structure, and he would have these parties out there where they would have fire pits and watch movies and in a less than safe condition. But the fact that that did exist in some shape or form allowed us to have a precedent to add an actual penthouse that's on there with life safety equipment and all that good stuff. I see exactly what you're talking about, and I swear they look like, listeners, go check it out. looks like two different planets. It seriously does. So tell me about some of the design considerations for this building and, and the spaces and working with that old brick. That just, that stood out for me. So the old brick was, was actually quite interesting because one of the first things that we wanted to do early on was the, 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 the existing window sills. We're at about three and a half feet off the ground. So what we wanted to do, and it was really the vision of one of the folks at the developers at Normandy, was to lower those windows down 
So you brought a lot more light into there because it's a south-facing facade and it's just, it's really killer light that gets in there. So that was a huge challenge because of the vintage of the building, it was not laterally supported in any way. And by taking away those windowsills, what we did was we actually brought into concern some other things about the lateral stability of the building, as well as the bricks. So what we wound up doing was when we took down those every windowsill we made it 18 inches deeper, we repurposed the contractor had to save a good chunk of those bricks, which were usable, to go kind of feather in all the other areas where we needed it. One of the other things with the brick, which which wasn't as much of a concern because it was on the side facade, however, there is a side that's visible from the east, was there was light wells in the building on either side. So it was almost like, you know, little, little tooths that were kind of poked into the building. But in New York City, you're allowed to deduct HVAC rooms from your floor area. The building at the time had no air conditioning whatsoever and had very little equipment of any kind in it. So one of the things we were able to do was when we added things like air handling rooms and mechanical rooms, take that space and then repurpose it. And there was so much available because the building didn't have anything. We were able to infill those 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 light wells and gain extra square footage, which was great. Uh, which was not so great was how the heck are we going to match this brick that was from, you know, several years before Anybody in my family was even in this country, so um, it was a little odd. But what we wound up doing was in the front, we really put our efforts towards the front where we were able to repurpose a lot of the brick. And then on the um, eastern facade of the building, we just didn't have enough, so we were we basically repurposed it with a bunch of um, new brick, and I think we kind of painted the old brick to match. And it, it, it all worked somehow, uh, but it looks pretty good. But that was that was really the thing because it just there was just no way we were going to get up eleven stories in what was maybe like a eight or nine foot wide hole to get it all the way up there. I'm curious, just because in Portland this would be a huge issue, and maybe it's not so much in New York. Um, what about structural? It was a tremendous issue on this project. The structural engineer was probably enemy number one on the early days of this project in all of our <laughs> meetings. I, I, I kept calling him a fun killer. And it's not his fault, but the like I mentioned previously, the building had no lateral stability system. So every time we touched something, they were like, look, this building is going to fall down if you do that. So what we had to do was basically go on the premise that while the building had no lateral, any discernible lateral system, it's standing up and it had been there for 100 years. So anything we did to the building, we had to add lateral systems for. So we put in entirely new vertical circulation systems in the building, new elevators, new freight elevators, new stairs. When we did that, all of those shafts were reinforced concrete, which were used as shear walls to help support the lateral stability of the building. The other structural concern of the building, again, was that it was because it was this weird kind of thing that shouldn't work, but it works and it's been there. Uh, when we put a penthouse on the roof, an actual penthouse with flat, you know, made of steel and, and, and things and not a tent or something, <laughs> the, the structural engineer was concerned about basically a, a sail effect from wind hitting the vertical surfaces that didn't exist previously and then putting an additional stress on the building. So when we did that, that required additional lateral and, and structural stability added to the building, which we were able to add via the light wells I mentioned before. So all the work we did, basically, any new thing we introduced was super reinforced concrete with a ton of shear resistance in it to, to 
help support that. The other consideration structurally was the roof was designed for pretty much the minimum snow load that was available. So turning it into an assembly space required some serious reinforcement, which part of what makes that 11th floor so great is it is a high, it has a much higher ceiling than the other floors and it has these now these tall windows. We added some windows along the other elevations of the building to give you like clear views to the Empire State Building. So we didn't want to then say we have this cool large ceiling height and then put all this structure in there and kind of ruin it. So it, what we wound up doing was doing a combination of reinforcing from underneath as well as above. Typically, probably in Portland, if, if somebody was going to take on a building like this, they would probably just tear it down and build a new one, um, unless it had historic status. Was that ever a consideration, or was it even something that was allowed? In New York City, we have something called Landmarks Preservation Commission that determines and deems which buildings and which districts are historic and, and, and so forth. So this was not within the purview of LPC. However, if you were to tear it down and build it, it would be much smaller than it is now because that's not what you're allowed to do. So we do this. We've done dozens of these projects now where the existing building is overbuilt. And as long in New York City code, as long as you keep 25% of the existing floor area of the original building, it's still considered an alteration. And you are then allowed to keep that overbuilt condition. And in a case like this and many others, where the building might not have appropriate MEP services, or in this case as well, we, we, we cut a hole in the second floor and made a two-story lobby. You can literally take that floor area and repurpose it. You can add it on the top, put additions on it in different ways that fit within the envelope. As long as within that same application, you're keeping all of that floor area. Now, if you lop something off in that application, it's gone forever. So that's really... Aside from it being good practice and being more environmentally friendly not to tear down buildings, the real reason I would say it it happens more often than not is because you're able to keep that overbuilt condition and it means significant amount of dollars for the developers. And I'll also say that tearing a building down in New York City and putting a new one is not easy. We do it. We do it every day. <laughs> right. But it right. is New York City, if you can keep a building and if you can keep the superstructure of the building, and you can keep all, you know, good components of it, there's a lot of value there for you. Talk to me about interior spaces. Are they, are they like cookie cutter kind of floor plans that then got developed out for tenants or, or did the building's uniqueness drive you to have to do something different? So they're really not. I, I can tell you that when, when we met Peloton and we met those folks, they were, you know, they were still in a small space. There was not a lot of people. They were really in their infancy. And what we had done for the developer was to take some kind of typical layouts of what it could look like. The big thing we did was that penthouse. So I, I will tell you that the floors for Peloton, which we actually wound up doing that work in the building, which was great. They're a great client to work with as well. But the Peloton floors are all fairly unique. When they initially moved in there, they took two floors. And they took those floors before the penthouse was even built, which was great because it gave us some ability to look forward to what they might have in there. But their floor plans were really centered around their business. And there's some uniqueness to their business. Without giving anything away, there's some uniqueness to their business that's reflected in those floor plans. But they quickly went on to take an additional, I believe, three floors over the next few years. So they took from 
I want to say the sixth or seventh, the seventh floor up through 12. At the same time, there was a carpet company that took five, I believe, and they kind of landlocked Peloton a bit. And then further down the road, WeWork wound up taking the rest of the building. And WeWork floors kind of are what they are. But the floors we did, they're all they're all different and unique. And, and, and I like to think they reflect Peloton and their needs very well. And then the lobby to the building was something kind of special too that we had um, we had probably done about three dozen different lobby designs over the years, got them approved, went in, said ah maybe we change it a little bit. And, and again, this is really a tribute to the developer of being open minded about you know, maybe we look at something different. And the idea was to repurpose a bunch of brick for the lobby. Um, don't tell anybody, but I'm about to tell everybody. There's at least one or two walls in there that are all just new brick that we couldn't. It, it just wasn't practical to do. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a very cool space when you walk in. It's a two-story space in the lobby that kind of brings you into there. And then there's a retail space on the ground floor that, as of now, I believe is not leased, but also a really cool retail space, which in the back of the building, there were these old glass kind of skylights that went across, and we were able to clean those all up you know, rebuild a lot of what was there and make a pretty cool space. So let's get technical for a minute. What would you say maybe the top two or three things were the most difficult or complex to design and figure out in order to get from where this building started to where it is now? Enlarging the window openings was probably the most complicated part of the project just because there were so many structural concerns and there were just so many unknowns that until we actually started demolishing this stuff and seeing what it's in there, we just didn't know. Let's talk about some of the products you used on this building a little bit. Um, I want to start with the roof. What does the roofing system up there look like and what did you have to do to turn it into this, this roof deck that can actually be used by people? Like I mentioned before, we reinforced it both from the bottom and the top. So when I say that, it means we added steel members along the bottom of the roof. We also added some on the top as well that tied into it because what that did was allow for a, a, a greater assembly load. But for the actual penthouse, what we wound up doing was basically building that platform, having that platform separately supported from the building. Because like I mentioned before, there was no discernible way of really understanding how this building had been standing up for a hundred years. So we wound up building a separate structure for that penthouse that held it up independent of the rest of the building and then went around there. And then that was at an elevation that I forget the exact height, but it was a couple of feet higher than roof level, which allowed us some room to put additional reinforcement in the actual roof deck area, which all gets covered up by roof pavers anyway. The actual facade of the penthouse is a combination of some storefront materials. We were able to actually adjust in the rear of the penthouse, build a bulkhead as well as lower the uh, the ceiling a little bit in the back so we could have storefront glass back there rather than curtain wall. Whereas in the front where the glass is a lot larger, it's actually curtain wall glass up there. This had to be a challenge because all I can do is look at this right now and think how challenging it must have been to make this building weather tight. How, how did you handle getting it to be as energy efficient as you could? It actually is a lead gold building. We achieved lead gold, oh, wow. it, which, which was pretty cool. But the weather tight was, it was a challenge because on top of the existing penthouse, we also have a lot of the building systems. We have a package boiler unit. We have cooling towers. We have a generator. And 
waterproofing and weatherproofing those things was challenging. We detailed it pretty well. When it first got installed, we looked at it and said, well, that's not going to work. So there was a lot of field changes made as far as wrapping different things and adding duplicate systems. Because when we first put it up there, it wasn't, it wasn't what you would traditionally call weather tight. <laughs> <laughs> but after you know a day or so of raining inside, we, we were able to come up with some changes and basically just some alternate weatherproofing detailing that was able to get wrap things around and just say, okay, we've given up the hope of going under this and, and being, you know, being a little more delicate with these things and say, we're, we're just going over everything and, and, and weatherproofing that. One of the other structures back there that was a little bit challenging on the roof was there was an existing, existing utility room that, again, was grandfathered in. It's in the setback. It's not where it should be. However, it was in a great spot to put elevator equipment. So we were able to keep that, but we had the challenge of the fact that we were not we would not have been able to rebuild it. So we couldn't tear it down and build it, but because it was there, but it was in pretty bad shape. So again, restoring that, it would have been a million times easier in that case to rip a couple of those walls down and rebuild them, especially from a weatherproofing standpoint. But we were uh we were kind of locked in there that we had to do what we had to do to rebuild that and not reconstruct it. I can't tell exactly. Is that a water tower on the roof or is that the building next to it and it just Oh yeah, I see. If you're looking at you're looking kind of halfway through the page before the plans, those are on the adjacent building. Those are water towers on the adjacent okay. building. We, we we put a fire pump in this building. So with that, with you know, in, in kind of layman's terms, is that the water comes in from where it comes in in the street, and the fire pump will give it enough pressure to get up to the top of the building and, and activate the sprinkler system and properly power it. And more often than not, in New York City, the way that's done is you have one of those kind of gnarly wood towers and they get, they're filled with water and then just the gravity flow of that is enough to charge the sprinkler system and have adequate pressure. So were there any um, particularly unique products that you had to use on this building? Like I had one guest who had to use this window film so that people couldn't throw bricks through the windows that I didn't even know existed. Well, thankfully nobody's throwing any bricks through our building, but what we... <laughs> Probably the most unique material we used on this is in the lobby. We used a product made by Porcelanosa called Creon, which is actually, you know, typically used on countertops, but we used it for the entire wall. And what was cool about it was we were able to get whatever shapes we wanted out of it. And our, somebody in our office went and did like a grasshopper script and kind of made this undulating pattern with lights in and out of it. And we were able to sculpt it out of this Creon, which is on the entire wall. And I believe that's one of the first times they had actually used that as a wall material rather than a, a, a horizontal surface material like a countertop. So that must have taken some coordination with the man manufacturer to, to do what you wanted to do. Yeah, I believe it was one of those cases where we kept sending them drawings and their shop drawings and they're like, can you just send us your, your files and we can just put this on our computer? And we're like, sure. That's, and that worked out pretty well. But that was, that was an interesting use of that material on the job. The floors were actually a little bit unique as well because, you know, everybody wants polished concrete floors, but the floors as they were previously were a cinder ash floor with wood slats over them, and that really wasn't going to fly. So what we initially wanted to do was just pour new concrete floors throughout and polish them like what most people expected in a New York City building. That was, we were unable to do that because, again, the fun killer structural engineer came in and was like, oh, you're not going to add that. It's too heavy. Right. <laughs> so we wound up using a, uh, a composite, like a gypsum-based material that we were 
able to polish and get a concrete look to, which came out pretty good. It doesn't, it's not as good as concrete, but it came out pretty good. But that was a huge challenge, because, and that didn't come up until, of course, you know, we're pretty far down the road, and the concrete and the structural engineers, you know, because like, you're going to put what on the floors? Concrete. I know you're not. <laughs> Structural engineers are always the party killers. Sorry yeah. for any of my structural engineer <laughs> listeners, but they do keep us safe. There's some, there's some good ones out there, though. Uh, how did how did construction go on this project? So it was interesting. We had to do it in diff- in various phases. You know, some for financial reasons, some just for scheduling reasons. So, and, and really, probably the most important was for safety reasons because there was parts of the building that were just completely unsafe. So, by way of example. A lot of buildings in New York City have, have what we call a vault. So what that means is in the cellar of the building, the cellar basically extends out to the street. So the sidewalk, it's called a sidewalk vault, the sidewalk above, you're walking over part of the building, and that's typically where services enter the building. A lot of rats sometimes live too. When we first went down there, when we started the project, I remember we walked down there. We didn't even need the structural engineer. I looked up and I was like, everybody get out of here. This is, I'm never walking across the street again. So that was kind of, we really had to expedite that before, the, before we were really ready to start the rest of the project. We had to get in there, rip out that sidewalk, rip out that, all that rotted out steel. Waterproofing was huge there. Waterproof that and, and create a, remove what was an unsafe condition that was there for years. So that was Basically, it was two projects in one. So while we were doing that project, we were still kind of figuring out, like, you know, how do we support the penthouse, all that stuff. So it was, from a construction standpoint, it was challenging for the whole team, quite frankly, because it's hard to know what's there until you start taking the building apart. And that, that's really true of any large-scale renovation. And I think that one thing I've learned over the years is to set expectations with clients, that this is just going to happen. We're going to do our best. We're going to survey the heck out of it. We're going to matterport it. We're going to do all, all that good stuff. But there's going to be some gremlins living in there that we're going to find, and we just have to all kind of be okay with that. And now I'm going to be nervous every time I go to New York City if I'm walking on a sidewalk in front of an old building. You should. <laughs> <laughs> good to know. Um, did the plumbing and HVA, how were the plumbing and HVAC systems? I, I worked in MEP engineering for a while. How did those go in? Yeah, it was one of the easier parts of the project. The building was basically a blank slate before. It had it had a crummy old boiler that lived in the basement. I think Freddy Krueger lived in there. So that that we quit. <laughs> basically we got rid of all that. It was all new mechanical and plumbing systems. So the, the client really wanted to use water cooled units, which I didn't hate because air cooled units, you know, they take up all your windows, which kind of stinks. So we put large cooling towers on the on, on the roof, and then basically we built new shafts through the building with these air handling rooms on each floor, which we were able to get that bonus from and use that floor area elsewhere. So that was that wasn't too bad. And then for heating, there's a it was pretty cool. They put a package boiler plant on the roof, which I had never seen before. It, it's a big box, almost looks like a shipping container, and it's literally got everything in there. And they just you know the crane comes, pops this thing on the dunnage on the roof. And they plug stuff in and then poof, turn it on and it powers everything. It's pretty cool. I had never seen one of those before. And then from a plumbing standpoint, yeah, basically everything that there everything that was there was trash. It wasn't good. So it's just a new, entirely new system. And we were, which was for us was pretty good because we weren't in the least bit concerned with existing riser locations. So we were able to put the bathrooms where they should be to make an efficient floor plate and make use of 
space that was like kind of the crappiest space in the building. So we were able to pop the toilet rooms back there. And- <laughs> well, that that's kind of nice at least. So, I mean, I have to ask, cause I know, I know we all do it. What do you do differently now when you're approaching a project like this? It's not always possible, but I think the more you can have an experienced construction manager in for pre-construction services on these projects, the better. We had that on this project, but not not to the level I think that would have been helpful. And we've gone on to do other projects with Normandy that have, you know, that I, I think this project went well. I don't think it went poorly, but I think where we were more prepared for some of these things. Preaching to the choir a little bit there. I'm 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 a spec writer, obviously. Um but I've, I've worked in multiple disciplines. And, and one of the pieces of advice, I also do a lot of teaching. One of the pieces of advice I give to the younger, well, people of all ages, but a good chunk of the people I teach project delivery to are younger professionals. The whole architect contractor butting heads thing during construction. And a lot of times that's over things that are clearly stated in the documents. Mm-hmm. but nobody bothered to talk about them or address them. And I always advise, have a meeting, be authentic, be upfront, build that trust right at the beginning, get out all of your division one requirements and go over them with the owner and the contractor. Everybody knows this is how submittals are going to go. And this is whether or not we're going to take substitutions. And so many things in our contractual models, our standard models are built to put the architect and contractor at odds. Hundred percent agree. Couldn't agree more. And again, knowing, you know, sometimes sometimes we're deeply involved with the bidding process. Sometimes we're not, and sometimes we don't see that contract between the the owner and the contractor. And you know, there's things in particular. There were some things on this project where you know I, I was stamping my feet on the ground, yelling and screaming, "You got to do this! You got to do that!" And they're like, "Well, we excluded that." And I'm like, well, "How the hell am I supposed to know that?" So, yeah, I think the the more transparency you can get there is going to be the best. And we have tons of projects where. You know, we we have that transparency up front, and that's where it works best. Setting the project aside for a moment, what are broadly some some areas or a particular area in our industry where you feel like we could improve? Where are we failing a lot? Uh, that's an easy one for me, and it's not necessarily project related as much as it is with with architects in general. I think that we constantly are competing with each other, which is fine. I'm all for I'm a capitalist. I'm all for competition. However, you know, we're, we're constantly undercutting each other for everything when it comes to fees on projects, driving fees down to the point where, you know, we're not doing our best work because we're our, our, our fees, we've kind of getting beaten up on fees and we do it to ourselves. All the way to what you're seeing now with staff. I mean, I think that it's gotten so ultra competitive now with staff that architects are, you know, we're, we're, we're whatever the opposite of undercutting is for staff are going in there and, you know, taking staff from each other and, you know, sometimes it's salaries that are not sustainable, and that's not good for anybody. I think that I, I always joke around, you know, if you if you have to get a knee replacement, you're not going to the doctor that's giving you the best price. You're going to the doctor that three or four of your friends have said is the best around and, you know, is on your insurance and all that good stuff. But you're not like, well, you know, Vito over there is going to do it for 10% less, so I'm going to get my knee replacement done there. You don't do that. Um, I feel like we're one of the few professions that really, um, we beat each other up for no, for no good reason. I'm about to go down a rabbit hole because you triggered something in my brain. <laughs> when I started in this industry, the architect designed everything, mm-hmm. everything that was architectural. 
Now we have a whole slew of consultants for different things. We do a lot of delegated design on our projects and, you know, okay, we're going to have this handrails, but contractor, you, you get it. You do the design. We're going to need handrails here. But how do you feel about that? I, I hate it. And it ties into my last comment, quite frankly, because why do we do delegated design? It's not because we don't care what the handrail looks like. We certainly do. You know, we want it to be the best possible handrail. We do delegated design because we're at the point where we're, we're doing our drawings. The team's on there where, you know, you're looking at the f- hours spent on the project versus the fee. And you're like, wow, we're underwater on this project. Like, it's just whatever. Just get sign and seal chop drawings and, and, and move on to the next detail. Um, and I think it all ties into it. And, and again, we have some clients that are very fair with, with fees. We have some that aren't. But I think overall, we do it to ourselves. And I think that's, I agree. I, I, I think that I would go further. I think architects have given up far too many responsibilities. Delegated design is truly a result of us not having adequate fees to do our best work. And, and once you do that, turning it around and taking it back is really hard to do. Well, it, it, it is because when you do that, and again, I am not in any way, I'm not saying I've never done it. I don't, I don't like doing it. I understand why it's done. But the second you do that, now you're, you're losing all control over it and, and whatever your design intent it goes out the window because then when somebody comes up with something that looks like poop, you have no choice. And you're like, well, that's not what I intended. And they're like, well, hey, that's what we priced and you delegated design to it. So that's what you get. That little piece of this conversation is going to be really popular with a lot of our listeners. Last two questions. Technology, in your opinion, for architecture, engineering, construction, what is the future of our industry? What's the big thing or a big couple of things that you see going forward that, that are going to change the way that we work? You know, my firm, we've invested a great deal of time, money, and knowledge, and we have some brilliant folks in our office on technology. So it's very important to us, and it's important to me. I think that, you know, really the, the, the top of the mountain there is when do we stop making these really cool models, and BIM, and modeling everything and doing it. When do we stop then taking that out and flattening it onto a bunch of PDFs that have been brought into the field and printed out on paper the same way it was done like when I was going on my dad's job sites in 1988? Like we we have all this kick-ass technology and then we just print it all out on drawings again the same way. Like when do we figure out how to stop doing that? I think that's the mountaintop. I believe that that will start changing as... Within the next couple of years, by 2025, when a, a majority of firm leadership is no longer baby boomers, and I'm going to get slayed for saying that, somebody, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to get ripped to pieces for saying that. But I mean, I mean, it's just a fact that the older you get, you just in general human nature, um, the more resistant to change you are. I, I don't disagree. People are afraid of what they don't understand. But I are but we have these two huge generations coming up right now that are not afraid of technology at all. And everybody forgets about Generation X, by the way. We, we always get like, everybody we, talks we, about we the don't millennials, count. Gen Z and the baby boomer. Nobody cares about us. We're the ones that are actually gonna change everything. I know, exactly. And that's what <laughs> I tell everybody. Um, but there's so few of us. You know, we're half that's almost true. half the size of the boomers. Um, so the millennials, there's you know, there's what 30 40 million of them that have to step up 10 yeah. 15 even 20 years sooner than they ever got to before to work next to us cuz there's not enough of us to fill the boomer's shoes it's 100% true um final question 
if you were the master of the universe and you could just pick one thing in the industry that you had complete power over to change, you know, whether it's in the industry or in the built environment in general, what would be the one, the first thing that you would say, this is how it's going to be from, from now on? No government, no, nothing involved. This is how it's going to be from now on. I haven't fully thought this through, but I'd probably say something to the effect of the fact that architects should be building again. I think that a lot of what we do, people don't have an understanding of what it actually means. You know, it used to be you drew lines, lines on paper and you're like, oh, there's a wall, but you didn't really know what that wall is. And even now you go into Revit and, you know, it's, it's three and five eighths and studs. And it has a little thing of it, but you don't, you haven't really felt with that wall. You've never built a wall. Um, I have a bias there, obviously, because I've done a lot of construction in my life. But I think it's valuable to understand when you go to a job site and you want to, you know, you're going to get into potential fisticuffs with the contractor. You should you should understand what they're doing, what they're actually building. And I think a lot of, I mean, I'm going to get in trouble, but a lot of architects have no idea how to build stuff. And I think that's a big problem. Either that or fees. <laughs> One of the two. This 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 um, talk today is like elevating on my list of favorites so fast. Every time you <laughs> nice. say something, and I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. I actually it was a long time ago, but did a stint in construction, not actually building things. I worked in the office, but I I was young. I was still a teenager, but I got a really good eye view of what happens in a construction company. And then I went into architecture, then I worked in MEP. Now I work in building science. Most of my career has been in architecture, but it changes the way you look at things and it changes the way you do your job. And you just hit the nail on the head in such a massive way. The old master builder kind of model of working, you know, with a current technology twist. I think, you know, everybody's afraid of putting all that risk under one roof. But I think that could be a really beautiful thing in how projects get delivered. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, as architects, we like to talk about being risk takers, but I think we're a lot of us are full of crap when we say that. <laughs> and, and, and and I will say to your point about working and even in an office for a contractor, one of our clients, they have the entire project team in the field office a block away from the project because it's a multi, you know, several years to build it. And uh, my folks are sitting next to the contractor who are sitting next to the MEP guy who are sitting next to, you know, somebody who's doing the demolition and vice versa. And it's it builds a different level of trust and camaraderie when, you know, it's one thing to fire off an email to somebody and say, this is terrible, you're the worst person in the world, and hit it, and you're a keyboard warrior, and great. It's another thing when the person sitting across the desk from you is going to get up and be like, hey, are you insane? This is what it really is. And I think that's what's missing. I think people hide behind emails as well. It, they're not quite so, oh, what's a nice way to put it? Quite so sassy in person. I've been involved with a few projects that did exactly what you're talking about. And it's a game changer in coordination and communication. It really is. It is. Now, it's easy for me to say I don't have to sit in the office, but it, it, it really is. And I, it, incidentally, I have a rule in our office. I tell everybody, I say, after the third email on a topic, pick up the damn phone. I know you don't like using the phone to talk, but you have to pick up the phone or else they just, these things escalate too much. You give them three? <laughs> I give them three. I okay. give them, th I think three is fair. On the third email on the topic, 
Because if I said two, nobody's going to actually listen to me. But if I said three, people people tend to listen, and then you, you people are surprised how quickly these issues actually get resolved when you pick up the phone and have a conversation with a human being instead of hiding behind a keyboard. Bill, thank you so much for being. That was a great conversation. I really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.